You're listening to episode 143 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? Before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to thank Corgi Pug for taking the time to rate our show five stars and write the following review. A wonderful community and podcast. If you like books and authors, this is the place for you. Although there are other podcasts that interview authors, I always come back to 88 Cups of Tea because of the host, Yin's enthusiasm. No one else compares to the magnetism that Yin exudes when she talks to her guests. She digs deep into the whys and hows of what authors do and who they are while also being extremely respectful and grateful to them for sharing. I like that she also talks about herself with stories that relate to most of the experiences of her guests. 88 Cups of Tea is a podcast that I feel as if I'm partaking in because it's intimate and real, and I always come away feeling inspired to write. Yin also mentions the private Facebook group and I highly recommend joining if you like to write or just want to be in a community of the most amazing people. I love that everyone merely has to yell into the void and members will respond with words of encouragement, advice, and real talk about writing, life, and everything in between. 88 Cups of Tea is more than a podcast. It's a group that makes me feel like I'm not alone in my struggles. Oh my god, first of all, Corgi Pug, uh... You have the best username ever. I actually Googled Corgi Pug just to see photos of a Corgi and a Pug mix, and they're so cute. And second, thank you so much for taking the time to write such a thoughtful and heartfelt review. I'm so honored, and I'm so happy you find comfort in the show and also in the Facebook group. That means a lot to me. And thank you so much for being a part of our community. Storytellers, if you haven't yet, I'd love for you to head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our show. Whenever you have some free time, I'd also appreciate if you could leave us a rating and a review. From what I hear, it helps our show become more visible to new listeners, and I'm so grateful for your support. Now on to today's conversation, we have Shannon Gibney with us today. Shannon is the author of See No Color, drawn from her life as a transracial adoptee which won the Minnesota Book Award and was hailed by Kirkus as an exceptionally accomplished debut and by Publishers Weekly as an unflinching look at the complexities of racial identity. In her latest novel, Dream Country, she writes of the nightmarish spiral of death and exile connecting America and Africa and of how one determined young dreamer tries to break free and gain control of her destiny. In today's episode, we dive deep into the inspiration behind Dream Country and how this book changed Shannon's writing life and personal life. We talk about how she grappled with the representational issues that came out throughout writing Dream Country, specifically in regards to the use of Liberian and Liberian-American English language, as well as the heavy challenges she had to face overall while writing her newest novel. And we also get into the very detailed research process for the book. We also discuss transracial adoption and her novel, See No Color. Further into our conversation, Shannon shares an eye-opening takeaway about working with the right editor and her experience with her editor overall. This episode is deeply informative. It's a must-listen for every storyteller, so let's jump right in. 
Hey everyone, we have Shannon Gibney with us today. I am so excited to have Shannon with us. She is such a joy to talk to. We already had a little bit of a pre-chat and I already adore and love her personality and I know we're going to get along so well. Um, And listeners, you're going to love her energy. Um, And huge shout out to her wonderful Andrew uh, who gave her, who let her borrow a mic because it sounds so crisp and clear as you'll hear. Um, And we appreciate that. So Shannon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking to you and all your listeners. I'm so excited. So I really want to backtrack. And this is usually like a heavy loaded question. Um, When do you remember was the first time you fell in love with storytelling? Oh, wow. Wow. That is a really great You're like, really? We only have an hour? Really? I know. (laughs) I know. That is. Whew. I grew up fascinated by stories and storytelling. I was a voracious reader, probably not surprisingly. I grew up around stories, around books. My parents read to me, of course, before I could read. My big brother read to me. He actually taught me to read. He was pretty lucky um, that way. I've always, always had this affinity for stories and storytelling how stories bring people together, how stories can explain things that are otherwise just impossible to wrap our minds and hearts around. I mean, I started reading around the time that kids normally do, like five or six, but before then, I always, always loved hearing picture books and my parents telling stories and everybody around me telling stories as like a a pre-reading child. Stories have just always been a part of my life, and I'm so thankful for that. And when was that moment when you were like, okay, all these stories that are being told, I am very much able to be that person who tells stories for a living. Like, was there ever that moment when you were younger? Definitely very early on for me. Again, I was lucky. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which, you know, we're in this era now of um, defunding a public education nationally, right? But I grew up in the era where, you know, people actually funded public education. And so people cared about intelligence, but yes, yes, exactly. And so I was a direct beneficiary of that largesse. And so went to some of the best public schools in the country at that time, being an 80s and 90s kid um, in K through 12. So my parents enrolled me and my brothers in what was then called open schools. The idea behind that was the learning centers that I think are pretty commonplace now, like in my children's classroom, where it's like, okay, the publishing centers over here, this is where all the kids can, you can make your own books over here. And over here is the math center, and you can get help on doing your math over here. And over here is the Spanish center, and you know, you can work on second language acquisition over here. And so my class is actually starting in about second grade, had places where you could like write your own books. No, first grade, what am I talking about? So first grade, this was a big deal, actually. <laughs> my brother, my older brother and I, and he's two years older than me, but three years in school because he's really smart and he skipped a grade. And so um, uh, there's shout out to you, John, you like that. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> so, so um, throughout this elementary school that we were in, all the grades would make these books. And so I was, of course, enamored with Strawberry Shortcake in first grade. And so I wrote this book about Strawberry Shortcake and her adventures and illustrated it. My brother, being my brother, wrote a story about electricity, right? How it works and what it means. 
I mean, I could still read that bad boy today and be like, wow, I, I, I didn't even know this about electricity. It was that good. It was funny. I remember we got out of school and at the end of every school day, me and him and then my younger brother, who's a year younger than me, would all meet and sort of walk home. So John and I were both like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I won. My book won in my grade. And like, we were both like, oh my God, you won? Oh my God, we both won. So that was really sort of like the formal start of my writing career. (laughs) And so after that, like I remember in second grade, I still have these books, quote unquote, these stories that I wrote about us camping, because that's something my family would do a lot. And then by fourth grade, I was writing a series, a whole series of books about this kid group of sleuths. It was a sister and two brothers, strangely enough. Yeah, Tim and Jim, and they would solve all these mysteries and crime. Also in fourth grade, I started a newspaper and I was just busy, busy, busy always. Fast forwarding from that time where we left off at fourth grade going forward, where was it where you felt like you started to find the discipline in developing your craft and realizing, okay, I'm going to write a novel? Throughout high school, again, I I just had amazing teachers. I had amazing access to, I mean, (laughs) our school was small. It was like 350 kids, but the teachers could develop their own curriculum in their own classes. So I was taking, you know, Chinese lit. And what? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, I cool. Still tell this and they still get pissed with me because they're like, <laughs> you got to take that in 10th grade. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I was taking that in 10th grade. That it was pretty badass. It's really badass. It wasn't like, oh, these are like the privileged smart. Kids. No, anybody could take these classes. So it was like Chinese lit, Japanese lit, you know, American lit. You know, and then in my history classes, we were also reading these amazing works of American literature. I mean, I took everything that I could possibly get my hands on. And then at home, you know, both my parents are avid readers. So my dad was like feeding me things like James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, and all these folks who were sort of like supplementing the education and the the steady diet of excellent texts that I was getting from school. You know, when I read somebody like James Baldwin, who, you know, it's really hard to say this because there's so many writers that I, I admire, but he's probably just for me, the writer that has meant the most to me at various points in my life. You know, this gets into kind of like my first novel, See No Color, which is about a mixed black girl adopted into a white family, you know, and of course it's highly autobiographical. That's my story as well. And so it's very interesting being black and mixed, et cetera. I mean, I remember being in high school and black kids, especially like, you can't, black people don't camp, you know, black people don't backpack, black people don't whatever, uh, out in the wilderness, out outside, you know, and it's like, it has been such a huge part of my life. You know, I'm 43 now. I mean, pretty much all the way through in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of getting grounded, even a feeling of safety. Uh, We had this, one of those pop-up campers back in the day. I mean, I look at it now and I'm just like, oh my God, how did we fit five of us in there? But somehow my parents did it. And we had this family joke that rainy, bad, quote unquote, weather. Well, that's camping weather, right? I mean, we spent so much time in that camper, just playing cards and like coloring and (laughs) just being together. I hope you don't mind me interjecting. I just read an article I was able to skim super quickly. And I was like, wow, such good, valid points that I didn't even realize I also experienced. But she was saying what it's like to go into the wilderness to these camping trips or these national parks as a minority. Were there any of those feelings coming up for you too? 
I think that developed more for me when I was in high school and really sort of developing some kind of identity and racial identity in particular. And, you know, I've always been super duper sensitive, like a lot of writers and artists. And so always pick up when people were looking at me and us. That's the thing about transracial adoption, too, is it's very public because it's embodied. And so it's sort of like people that, you know, how did that happen? And the thing that would happen to us, we would go to this cottage, too, every summer for like a week. And there was like whole groups of kids from other families at other cottages right nearby. And they'd always be like, oh, you're adopted? Where are you from? You know, just stuff like that. Um, I mean, I never had a moment where I felt fearful for my safety in that kind of racialized violence way. But, you know, then getting older and learning about the legacy of, let's say, Black land and sundown towns, right? Towns where Black folks and Indigenous folks, other people, et cetera, you know, a lot of it was Black folks, were not allowed to be after sundown. And then, of course, were run out of town and sometimes killed even. Then the legacy of sort of like Black farms, how the government, of course, colluded in taking so many of those, right? And so I do feel like this sense of, you know, now that I'm grown, I do have a Black identity. I am part of Black communities. And that it's like, no, this is part of our birthright. Like, we get to have this, right? Like, we don't actually get to have white supremacy and white people take this from us. And this is like a human need, you know? They've documented all this research that shows rates of depression go down when people are around green space and anxiety goes down. People can think better. People can relax. There's less crime. I mean, it's a huge issue. When you were discovering your own identity as now that you're grown, what was that like for you emotionally coming to terms with claiming your own? Definitely like all identity formation, especially as a a teenager into adulthood, I mean, is a process and definitely layered. And it's only in hindsight that you can look back and be like, oh, that moment, you know, that moment, that moment. Yes, (laughs) there were definitely moments. And this is why I actually felt compelled in many ways to write See No Color, because it's not that transracial adoption and transracial adoptees don't exist in literature or in YA literature or kid lit. We do. It's just that the representations have been dominated by white adoptive parents who don't identify as such, or just non-adoptees who may be missing some facets of the experience. For instance, for me, the phenomenon of shame actually is a huge part of that identity. For instance, when you look like a certain group of people, but you can't perform culturally. So for instance, looking black, but I can't speak black English or I couldn't speak black English growing up. Every culture has its very specific kind of humor, right? And like, okay, well, I don't get that joke. I don't have that cultural reference. Even, you know, soul food. I didn't grow up eating that. Or my friends, I live in Minnesota and we call Minnesota, it's been called for quite some time, the land of 10,000 Korean adoptees. So I have a lot of friends who are Korean adoptees, right? And it's sort of like the Korean, Korean American community here. It's sort of like, well, okay, if you don't speak Korean, well, you're not a real Korean. You're not familiar with kimchi and you're not familiar with these types of foods or whatnot. So there's a lot of, almost like being in the closet, (laughs) you know, like shaming and sort of like, okay, I don't want people to know, especially with me being mixed, right? And the character 
Alex in the book, the main character, she does this, right? So I'm, of course, modeled this kind of behavior on stuff that I would do, <laughs> where I was just sort of like, oh, yes, my white father is dropping me off for this NAACP event, you know, and then somebody asks me, oh, yeah, is your mom black? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> because my mom is not there. Right. And I don't want to go through all this stuff. And I don't want to prove, once again, my black card already is suspect because I'm mixed and light-skinned and I've got all these sort of like signifiers of white culture all over me from the way that I dress to the way that I speak and all these things. And so it's like, it's just easier to sort of like pass in that way, if that makes sense, right? It's not true. It's probably not psychologically healthy, but I did do that at times in my teens and 20s. And that's not an uncommon experience. Again, some of my Korean adoptee friends who in my experience and listening to the stories of some of my friends and colleagues, it's like (laughs) some of these agencies will be much more likely to drop Asian American children off like in the middle of nowhere where there's literally no people of color for hundreds of miles than they would for, again, in my experience, a black child. And that has a lot to do with like, you know, racialization and sort of like the perceived sort of hierarchy of resistance in various communities of color to whiteness and white supremacy and whatever. But I had a few friends who, I mean, they did not see another Asian American person like themselves until they were 18 and went to college in the Twin Cities. So they actually grew up afraid of people of color and Asian Americans in particular, right? And those were not experiences that I really saw at all in any literature about transracial adoption and transracial adoptees. And so those were some of the kinds of things that I really wanted to explore in that book, because when you don't see yourself, of course, the wholeness of your experience uh, represented in the literature or the culture around you, of course, what happens is you end up feeling like a freak. And it's just, it's not good and it's not necessary either. Mm It's a long road, as we know, it's life and life as an artist and writer. It's certainly not easy, but it is such a gift. I also wanted to touch on dream country. Why don't we just start off with your own description of what you're okay with our listeners knowing and a heads up this community. Yes, everybody reads, but most of them, a majority of them are writers. So please don't ever feel worried that you're going to give away any like spoilers or anything because (laughs) even when authors give spoilers away or just talk about the whole book the listeners if anything they're more inclined to show support and also learn from the authors too how they were able to you know oh that difficult scene they were talking about and then they read it they're like wow I can't believe she was able to get through that dang that was awesome you know it's so this is very much like a behind the scenes so just letting you know it's your stage Okay. Wow. That's really awesome. (laughs) That's a great platform for folks. So, Oh, thank um, you. Yeah. Thanks for creating that. Um, Yeah. So dream country, the way that I've been describing it is it's about five generations of a Liberian, Liberian American and African American family. It's told from the perspective of a group of protagonists who are all part of one family. It's not chronological, It jumps across space, time, and place. So it takes place over 200 years, and it takes place in Liberia and here in Minnesota and the Minneapolis metro area where I live and where there's a huge Liberian population and actually, you know, Somali population, lots of Hmong folks and refugees as well. Very vibrant community here. 
Yeah. So <laughs> that's kind of my boilerplate. What do they call that? Elevator spiel. <laughs> Elevator um, pitch. <laughs> that I kind of give people. First of all, it's a very interesting moment for me right now. Um, the book comes out on September 11th and <laughs> it, it took me 10 years to write it. And I had it in me for 20 years. So I was basically fighting writing it for another 10 um, because I first sort of knew that these were themes and ideas and questions and characters that I wanted to explore after I did a year long research fellowship in Ghana. And I had the opportunity that was unfortunately in the middle of the 15 year Liberian civil war. And so I stepped into a a refugee camp, Gamobudu Bruin, outside of Accra. And I saw the what I thought was the American flag. And my new friends there, who of course were Liberian refugees, were like, yeah, no, <laughs> that is the Liberian flag. That is not your flag. I'm like, but why does it look so much like ours? And they looked at me like I was, you know, nuts and were just like, you don't know your own history. You don't know that Liberia was founded by, you know, former African-American, you know, slaves. And, and I was like, I mean, I think my head exploded because that was actually the topic that I was in Ghana to look into, to research. I was there to write stories about encounters and chasms and connections between continental Africans and African-Americans. And I had been there for like five months at that point. And this is my first year out of college, you know, so this wide-eyed 22-year-old, 23-year-old. And I was just like, how is it that I have never encountered this clear historical example of this phenomenon of this encounter between Africans and African-Americans? And so I talked to folks there. I spent a little bit of time there. And then when I went back home, I just looked up everything that I could find on Liberia, on the colonial period, on this encounter, uh, this ongoing encounter. There was little to nothing in fiction and then the nonfiction, it sort of has been coming out for the past 20 years. There's been more and more really good nonfiction pieces coming out that I actually reference in the back material of the novel for further reading. And some of those have been super helpful to me when putting the book together. But yeah, I mean, as a 23-year-old, I was just like, okay, one, I don't know where to start. <laughs> Two, I don't know if I have the writing chops to write this story, right? Because I knew it was going to be intercontinental or cross-continental. It was going to be multiple voices, so it was going to be multivocal, and I would have to, you know, write Liberian characters that were convincing, you know, and write in Liberian English and Liberian American English. And as a transracial adoptee, right, I'm super sensitive to, and probably oversensitive in some ways, to folks from historically marginalized communities and historically misrepresented communities in literature, let's say, being misrepresented. Like, I, I don't want to participate in that at all. I mean, I really spent a long time um, interrogating myself about like, okay, why do I want to write this story? Like, why me? Why do I feel like I, I need to write this story? And I say with Dream Country, you know, some stories pick you and other stories you pick. And so Dream Country definitely was just a story that picked me. I did not want to write this book. I mean, I did not want to write this book. <laughs> I ran from it as long as I could. And then it was like, okay. I mean, it was like, you you have to do this. And if you don't do it, no one else is going to do it. And so that's what I came to and just stumbled my way then through it. And 
you know, we live in Minnesota. A lot of writers and artists live here because it's so rich in resources for writers and artists. So, you know, I applied for all these grants and whatever to go to Liberia to do research in my 30s, so about 10 years ago. And I didn't get any grants. <laughs> and finally, I was just like, you know what? I just, I'm just going to pay for this out of pocket. Like, I just need to do this. So when I was 33, I, I traveled back. I had some contacts from folks here and I interviewed people specifically who had either lived through or studied the run-up to the 1980 coup that plunged Liberia into its civil war. In that trip, I actually met my now ex-husband and he was, he was my research assistant. You know, my friends are real funny. They were like, oh yeah, you were doing some pretty heavy duty research. <laughs> okay, all right. So busy with that researching. Yeah. I like your friends. Yeah, Bear, you would like them. You, would, you all will get along. Like either we go to, to where you are. Done and done. Let's go grab some wine. I'm so yes. down for this. Yeah. So you can come next time you're in Minnesota. You know, it'll be a whole, yeah. yeah. I'm going to come find you guys. Yes. you need. <laughs> yeah. They're fantastic. So yeah. So just to say this book not only changed my writing life, but mm. it changed my life, like my lived life too. I've got two beautiful children, Marwin and Boise, three and eight, and they are half Liberian. That is part of their lineage. That is part of their culture. That's half of who they are. And they wouldn't be here if I hadn't gone to Liberia to do this research for this book. Um, that's beautiful. And uh, it's pretty cool because now your kids, when they grow older, they see dream country. And they're like, yep, this is what made us. Yes, uh, yeah, totally. no, not even kidding. Like when they look at it, they have something tangible when they can pick it up and they're like, this is the reason why we're here. I think that's yeah. a really cool thing. Yeah. I do want to ask you too, what was the most difficult thing you had to deal with? Because I'm sure this book was not easy to write at all. No. As you, we were just talking about, like you've been running away from it for so long. The representational issues were really hard for me. And that that translates into the language, right? Mm, like, yeah, I, mean, I really wanted to make sure that I got Liberian and Liberian American English as right as I could. And I am not Liberian. As I said before, I'm not I don't speak Liberian English. I, of course, being married to a Liberian for eight years definitely stepped into tons of um, social settings and communities where I was exposed to it. Right. But, you know, I mean, you talk about somebody like, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, right. Too, who really had this commitment to kind of getting black English on the page and really, you know, was kind of skewered for it, not just by white critics, but also some black critics as well. You know, when you're around Liberians, you're around Liberian Americans and really anybody who has a home language, it's like, that it's such a part of the culture. It's such a part of the fabric that ties people to each other. It's such a part of the history, you know? So I felt like I really had to get as much of that as I could into the book. But <laughs> I had a lot of fear and trepidation about getting it wrong. And I think in some cases, fear is good. <laughs> you know, um, I think it really made me do my homework in a very deep way. And doing my homework is not just bibliographic research with books and articles and such, but also talking to librarians about certain words or, you know, linguistic phrases or turns and making sure, of course, that I had sensitivity readers and all those things. And still, again, I know, I know 
I messed up on some stuff, right? Any book is just a book. So there's going to be mistakes, right? But then when you're stepping out of your comfort zone, I mean, as a cross-cultural person, I'm doing that all the time, but also just me as a writer. Also, I don't like doing things that I know that I can already do. I just, I don't, I get bored, but that that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. Uh, do you mind me jumping in and asking also when you're saying that you've passed on your work to sensitivity readers, how are you able to go find the ones that you truly believe that you could trust and have full faith to put your baby in their hands? For anybody who's looking for sensitivity readers, what would you advise from that experience? Again, definitely living here and being hooked into a Liberian American community here, it was relatively easy for me to find some folks. Of course, you, you need to respect people's time and expertise. And so you have to pay them for sure. And for me, it was an incredibly validating experience, actually, to have these were two women in their 30s, Liberian American. So they're second generation. Their parents were the people who lived through the war. And then they came here, either when they were very young or they were born here. It was just incredibly moving for me to get feedback from them because the feedback from both of them was mostly like, this was really hard for me to read, but really good too. One of my friends says, if you read like a Toni Morrison novel, it's like a pound of flesh. Like you're not going to get out of that novel without giving something, right? Like emotionally. And so I think it was like that for them. The stories in there, like Togar's story about the forced labor period in Liberia, which really, there's not that much written about it historically or in terms of like nonfiction. And I mean, to my knowledge, there's nothing written about it in terms of fiction. I could be you know, wrong about that, but to my knowledge, there's not. And I just learned about that from my ex-husband's uncle. So he mentioned it and I was like, what are you talking about? Like the, the America, you know, they call them Congo people, but the America Liberians, right? The descendants of African-Americans who founded Liberia in the 19th century. What do you mean? They went into villages in the early part of the 20th century and they got indigenous men to work on these plantations for next to nothing or even nothing sometimes. Like what? what? <laughs> like what was that about, right? And just mm-hmm. talking to him and then doing some research and some other folks. And one woman was like, yeah, my, these are things that my parents, they've mentioned this before, but to read about it in a story like this is just completely different. Right. And it makes it so much more real and so much richer and so much more complicated and sadder too. Also, some of the African immigrant students that, you know, I've read sections from the first section, which is about Coley, who is a disaffected 16-year-old refugee from Liberia. And he's been in country, he's been here in Minnesota since he was 11. He's, he's on the soccer team and he's really active in that community. But otherwise, I mean, as far as his school, he just can't really find his place. And there's a lot of tension between the African-American students and the African immigrant students at his high school, Brooklyn Center High School. Whenever I've read parts of that section, and then these two sensitivity readers said this too, they're like, you know, we know Coley. We know him. And our heart breaks for all these Coleys in our community that nobody, not that nobody cares about, but nobody, it's just their stories are not held up. And they're certainly not in the literature at all. 
I had the opportunity actually, and really the profound gift of being able to interview two young men who had had the experience that Coley has, where ultimately his parents, like many immigrant parents, are just, they don't understand the American school system. They have figured out that, you know, they're losing their son, right? He gets expelled at the end of that section for fighting. And then, you know, he starts going towards dealing drugs and they are just like, you know, that's it. It's always this threat of like, you're going to get sent back to Liberia, right? Because that's going to straighten you out, right? And that's the end of that section. I talked to these two young men, one actually in Monrovia, in Liberia, who'd actually been deported for selling drugs. And then another who still in the United States here, his mom sent him to Liberia after he was having all these problems in school. And he was there for five years. And then he came back and got actually a soccer scholarship to this state school. And by all intents and purposes, he's a success story. But the amount of anger, unexpressed anger, pain that this young man was carrying really, really stuck with me. And I wanted to see if I could really get that perspective of somebody who had gone through something like that, right? I mean, again, the end of the Coley section is when he gets sent to Liberia, right? But sort of like the run up to that. How does this happen? I wouldn't say it's a common practice in these African immigrant communities and other immigrant communities, but it's not uncommon. It's not. What are you hoping that people will take away from your book? Something that you don't think would be as obvious or common? You know, the the beginning quote that opens the book is from Cydia Hartman's just breathtaking book. It's a memoir and it's also a historical document (laughs) and analysis. And that is, lose your mother. And the quote is, for me, the rupture was the story. And that book is all about, she's amazing. If you haven't read Cydia Hartman, just, you know, get your life, read her. But, you know, she's an African-American professor at Columbia, I believe. And she spent some time in West Africa retracing the steps of the, you know, the slave trade, the path to the door of no return, all of these things. The profound lack of cultural and historical understanding between Ghanaians and African-Americans. For this book, I mean, there's so much that each generation goes through that the reader is taken through or is subject to, right, or witnesses. What you start to see, I think, I hope, through the book is these silences become ruptures. They become traumas. I mean, they're already traumatic because of some of the things that happen, but then if they become more traumatic and bigger ruptures and bigger chasms because nobody talks about them from generation to generation. So Angel, who we find out at the end of the book, right, has been writing this book as this practice of trying to create some narrative, some cohesive narrative, some semblance of wholeness from this ripped family history that she has and these relationships that, you know, in real time are really so unsatisfactory and really broken. It's like she's taking bits of what the truth, right? What Coley went through, what really happened. And then some of these stories that she's heard about her dad growing up in the time of William Tobert, who was really the last Liberian president before the coup and sort of all this hopefulness that finally the indigenous Liberians were going to have 
some kind of sovereignty and some kind of voice in this new burgeoning democracy and all of the pain that followed from not really happening. And so she sort of constructs this storyline to explain a lot of these fissures, a lot of these ruptures that have completely influenced her relationships with her family. But nobody will talk to her about this stuff. So she's been spending literally like years. She says at one point, you know, I could have gone into therapy or I could have written this book. (laughs) And really, she probably should have done both. But, you know, this is her process of trying to, I don't know if I want to say recuperate those silences or almost speak into those chasms to create some semblance of wholeness. And so, I mean, one of the things that I really hope that people take from the book is, yes, these chasms are here, but there are other ways to respond to trauma than just chasms and silence. And that also the African and African-American encounter, which is so complex. Of course, the book is just dealing with this one historical example of that. But it's like there are these stories, right? We do have these stories. We do have these moments. And as an African-American, it's painful. It's, it's, it was incredibly painful for me to, and, and just like cognitive dissonance. Like I'm like, how could people who really in every way should have known better because they live through this kind of regime of racial oppression and violence. And then they go someplace else and they just basically perpetrate that shit on other people, right? Like, oh, well, they're savages and they're not Christian and they're whatever, we want their land. All this stuff, right? And it's far more complicated than that. But when you read the Yasmin section, which is the colonial section, I mean, that's part of what you see there is this transformation from this woman, 1827, and she's a widower, she's got these four kids, and she's not a former slave, she actually works on a Quaker plantation. And then so she's, you know, getting paid, you know, whatever, a little bit, but she's just like, I have no confidence in this country's ability to actually treat Black people like citizens. Like, when is this going to happen? And so she's just like, you know what? I'm out of here. She hears about this scheme of the American Colonization Society, which was this cockamamie <laughs> scheme and group of these mostly white male slaveocracy, you know, slave owners who started to see this burgeoning threat of free blacks in the colonies and were like, this is not good for us, right? We don't want our slaves seeing this possibility of freedom. And so what can we do? Let's send them back, quote unquote, <laughs> right? Like, let's create this colony. With that example in the Yasmin section of the American Colonization Society, which also has not been very well represented at all in American literature, or fiction, I should say, certainly YA. Um, So you have that example of this white superstructure that is the context in which some of these African Americans are articulating some sort of Black freedom, which you find out and you see in the Yasmin section, that becomes really problematic. Right. And then, but you juxtapose that with the Coley section and it's the same thing happening in that section. It just looks different, you know? So it's like the school that is majority kids of color, African and African-American, but most of the teachers are white. Certainly the curriculum is not for them. It's very white as well. The structures are very white. And there's one scene that kills people, which really it should of the white security officer there beating the crap out of this black kid that Coley actually doesn't get along with, this African-American kid. So it's like, we were doomed from the start, you know, because we exist within these superstructures, right? And so there's a lot to dig into. Let me ask you what you had to go through to write this book. You had to have really 
trusted your editor. You have to be very delicate in the way you were approaching this book in many different ways. And I just cannot imagine handing it off to somebody if you didn't trust them or if you didn't have faith in their work, because one little thread that's sticking out, it can unravel everything. So how'd you know it was the right editor? I just cannot say enough good things about my editor, Andrew Carr. You know, as I've said on other venues and other occasions, for me, it's just another example of like, you can't overgeneralize or stereotype or make assumptions about who's going to understand your work, who's going to appreciate it, who's going to be able to push you to produce your best work, who's going to have an affinity for it. Andrew is at Dutton Books for Young Readers, and I worked with him on Sino Color before that. And that was just like a really great experience for me for that first book. Like he just was very careful and sensitive to the fact that he is a cisgender white guy, right? And there's a lot of things about that experience of being a mixed Black transracially adopted young woman (laughs) that he didn't have knowledge about. And he really trusted me in that book, like when he had questions about certain things, you know, what about this issue of how does colorism work in terms of adoption and adoption fees? And how would Alex, the main character, sort of conceptualize this difference between mixed race identity and black identity? You know, what's that? And, you know, all these things. And that was a really good experience. And when we finished that book, he was like, you know, what's next? And I had written actually a short story with Cully in it. So it was a shorter version of the section that would become Cully. And I was like, well, I think I, I want to write a book about this kid. And he was like, okay, yeah, that's good. But is there more? (laughs) And I was like, okay, what do you mean by that? And number two, I was like, I have this other book. He was like, well, I just feel like in some ways it's letting an American audience sort of like off the hook a little bit. If we just go into, okay, this is experience in America. It was problematic in this way. And then he's in Liberia and it's even worse in all these other ways. And he was like, well, what about looking into some of the other aspects of this encounter between Liberians and African-Americans? And I was like, well, that's my other book. (laughs) I was like, I've been working on this other book for 10 years and that is Dream Country. And I've got the section in the colonial period in Liberia where this African-American woman comes with her kids and it doesn't go well. (laughs) I've got this other section that is about the forced labor period. I've got this other section, the coup, and it said they're all connected because it's all one family. And he's like, yeah, great. That sounds fantastic. And I'm like, but is it YA? (laughs) He and I always go back and forth on this. Just like my identity is really intersectional. Does not really fit in a lot of places? Like my writing as well tends to issue a lot of categorization. I don't mean to sound facetious, facetious in that like somehow I don't understand genre. I understand genre very well, but I just generally don't care. You know, like you call it YA fiction, if you call it literary fiction, if you call something of mine memoir. And with that, when I look at what I produce, what I write, I see that it also is intentionally pushing up against genre boundaries, even though that might not be why I wrote it that way consciously. And Andrew is really appreciative of those kinds of risks that writers he works with take. He just has a way of really believing in you and your capacity to tell this story in your particular way to tell this story and gives you just a lot of confidence. And then also, I mean, I reached a certain point in the book where I was just like, 
okay, I'm not sure what's next in terms of revision and what's it. And he's like, okay, you, you have to make an outline. <laughs> My whole life, I hate making outlines. I hate them so much. And he was just like, okay, this is going to make it so much easier. And he was right. I didn't want to do it. But after that, it was like this whole like load had been lifted from my shoulders, right? That's what good editors do. At the same time, you know, he lives here in the Twin Cities, but I think like five times a year he flies to New York. So he has kind of like a mobile office here. Our kids are friends, get together, he and his wife and my kids. And we know each other just as humans, (laughs) which we have a real relationship. He knows things about me and in terms of personal things and then my writing life. It just is, it's unlike any other relationship that I have. I have this implicit sense of trust with him is what I'm trying to get at. That makes it possible for me to take the kind of risks that are necessary to write a book like Dream Country. Thank you for going into your editor and really giving us behind the scenes because I always love that kind of conversation where our listeners can also get a glimpse and also when they're ready to have editors or are in the process of finding one and working with one, they kind of have an idea of how other authors are doing it. My biggest takeaway from what you shared about working with him is that you can't just make assumptions. I came into it thinking, oh, I would probably be more likely to gravitate towards someone who is Asian American to edit my story, you know, thinking that only they would understand. But then it's very clear just from your story, your own personal experience that no, it's not necessary. As long as you can trust that person and they're good at what they do, they have a passion in wanting to help tell your story. It's not always necessary where you need to find someone that mirrors you. So that was like a really helpful takeaway. And Shannon, you've been so wonderful. much for this. I do want to wrap it up with you please telling us where listeners can find you on social media. Yes. So I'm more of a Facebooker. And so it's just Shannon Gibney and you can friend me there. I post like a lot of stuff about my kids because I find them hilarious. Love that. (laughs) Yes. You can always find me there. That's probably where I'm most active. And then on Twitter, it's just at Gibney Shannon. So I'm there as well. I'm not there as much as I am on Facebook, but I am there. And then I did just open an Instagram account and it's some variation on my name, like Shannon E. Gibney. <laughs> Perfect. So we'll have those listed down in your show notes page. And if any of the listeners, they just want to click on it, just head over to your show notes page, or you can even check in whatever app you're listening to Shannon in right now, it'll be in that little summary right there. I'll link to your social media. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that wraps up our episode with Shannon Gibney. Shannon, thank you for diving deep in our conversation. And I'm so grateful to have learned so much from you. I loved having you on the show. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to say hi to Shannon on Twitter at Gibney Shannon. To access her show notes page, head over to 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Shannon dash Gibney. You can find 88 Cups of Tea on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. Come say hi and write a review about us at Apple Podcasts. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. From what I hear, the more listeners we have subscribed and write a review, the better it is for us to reach new listeners, which is so helpful for the show and for anyone who's looking for inspiration. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.